RadioInfluence.com. The 2018 college football season is now officially complete. And it's time to break down the national championship game and more on the latest edition of Rush the Field, the college football podcast for you, college football fans. I'm Scott Seidenberg, alongside veteran coach, consultant, scout, Chris Landry from LandryFootball.com. Chris, it was an exciting college football season, the national championship game. I think we're not surprised by who won the game, but we're surprised by the manner in which they won the game. And of course, we're talking about the Clemson Tigers. Yeah, it was certainly uh, very surprising to me. Uh, I did not see a scenario where we'd see a blowout. Games kind of take a a life of their own. And sometimes uh, it gets, you know, gets lost a little bit by one team to where the, the, the point differential is, is maybe a little exaggerated. Not in this case. I mean, this was a beatdown, and I did not see a beatdown of either team against the other here. Certainly didn't see Alabama playing the type of game that they did um, and Clemson completely dominating. And and, and that's um, exactly what it was. But I'm not uh, surprised that Clemson won. I, I thought that they had a really good chance. This is a really good team. And now, you know, I think it's fair to say that when you're put talking about the – top of the mountain in college football. I mean, Alabama's up there, but Clemson is right there with them. And depending upon how you want to shake it out and, you know, make your narrative, which I don't care to make a narrative either way, you can say, well, Alabama's won five of the last 10 national championships. Uh, Clemson's won two of the last three. So I guess it depends on how far you want to go back, but there's no doubt that this Clemson program in its current state is right there, the equal of Alabama's. And if you want to make the case that they're a little bit better over the past three years, you can absolutely do so. Uh, How about this for stats, Chris? Over the last four seasons, Alabama with a record of 55 and four with two national titles, Mm -hmm. Clemson with a record of 55 and four with two national titles. Exactly (laughs) right. I think I'd sign up again for this matchup next year because these are the two best teams, the two best programs in college football. And watching that game on Monday night, I don't care that it was lopsided. I don't care that it wound up being a blowout. The level of play that we saw from both of those teams is higher than most of the college football than we watch the entire season. They're just playing on a different level right now, both Clemson and Alabama. Well, and, you know, I think what is intriguing is this is, you know, this is the fourth matchup and, you know, the third one in the national championship and Clemson's now won two of them. And it's quickly how the narrative changes. Going into the game, we know, okay, they were one and one in the national championship game. And, you know, Alabama won last year. So if Alabama wins the game, it's three and one. And, they, you know, you can say, well, you know, Clemson, they won that game. It was close. Deshaun Watson made a big play, yada, yada, yada. But, you know, Clemson's no Alabama. You know, well, now the narrative just that quickly. It's amazing how people just, you know, want to write the story and then tear it up and rewrite it off of one result of one game. Mm-hmm. Now it's, mm-hmm. oh, well, you know, Clemson's the program. Because now they, you know, you mentioned the statue equal, but the one thing there is, Clemson is two and one in championship games that they've played in the past three years. So, yes. uh, and one, both of those 
first two games were very close that could have gone either way. This one was a clear domination by Clemson. And I think the fact that it was a clearly dominated game just strikes to, whoa, you know, Clemson, a statement. Uh, they've arrived. They're the new king of the hill and not Alabama. And that's the narrative today. But let me just say this, that time will tell on that. Just like everyone wants to write the story in September, October, November about what's going to happen. That's all the conjecture. The story is not written until the final clock of the final game goes to all zeros and we know who's wanted. And this is kind of where we are now. It, to me, does not tell me for certain what's going to be next year. Mm -hmm. I would say this, that even though Nick Saban is going to be 68 and Dabo Sweeney is not yet 50, the future is certainly, from a longevity standpoint, more in Clemson's favor. We would think none of us know what tomorrow brings for any of us. But the reality is, boy, anybody that's ready to throw dirt on Nick Saban in Alabama, that would be foolhardy. I know that he always is looking for ways to get better. This was, quite frankly, an embarrassment for Saban, and I would be very surprised if they're not back in the thick of things again next year, even though the SEC is getting even tougher. And Clemson is... Certainly not going to go away themselves. We could, as you said, see these two teams again. In fact, as foolish as it is, as I just said, if you were to ask me just on what we know now, Scott, the rosters come back. Clemson and Alabama are the two best rosters and would likely be in the playoffs next year. Of course, there's no way to know that because there's so much football and injuries and circumstances George is going to have a really good team next year. We don't know how this is going to play out other than the fact that these two teams, I think are going to be around next year and have very good seasons. Yep. The odds in Vegas to win the 2020 national title. Clemson is your favorite followed by Alabama, just very close behind them as the second favorite. So already (laughs) Vegas is talking about Alabama and Clemson as the two favorites to win the national championship and rightfully so. But, Monday night, Chris, was a beatdown that we have not seen Nick Saban and any of his teams, with the exception of Miami Dolphins, endure. We've never seen it at LSU. We've never seen it at Michigan State. We never saw it here with Alabama, certainly. This was embarrassing for Nick Saban, as you mentioned. But if you were to give an MVP award last night, who had the most impact on that game was it Trevor Lawrence, who was masterful, the freshman, the freshman quarterback, or Brent Venables, who I think coached one of the most impressive game plans from a defensive standpoint that I can recall seeing in recent memory, Chris? Yeah, I would go with Venables. Um, you know, here's the thing that, that I saw in breaking down the game uh, this morning um, on the coaching tape, and, and – they did a lot of the things that they normally do, but they disguised it very well. Um, Pretty clear to me, off of what I saw, that they had some of this prepared during the preparation for Notre Dame. They put some time into kind of how they were going to disguise it. And I don't know that they introduced it until, you know, after the Notre Dame game to the players. 
But this type of preparation was very impressive because it caused a lot of problems for Tua Tungavaloa. He was very confused in this game. Um, Tua tends to make the pre-snap read and go with that. And then on the RPOs, he's obviously reading a defender. What in general people say, well, they confused him. Well, what does that really mean? So I want to get into it a little bit in that what they did is they showed one thing coverage-wise and front-wise pre-snap and then changed it post-snap and really confused to it. And as he went to his uh, predetermined pre-snap read, um, it wasn't what he thought it was going to be. And it is something that I know they picked off of film. Listen, I, I can tell you from firsthand in discussing the game plan prior to, LSU saw the same thing on Tua, the pre-snap reads. LSU, with their secondary, they couldn't get it done. Why? Well, they're not as talented as Clemson overall, particularly with their front. I thought Clemson did a great job with their pressures. LSU did a good job with their coverages, but they couldn't get pressure. So Tua had time to be able to adjust Mm, a little bit, and he did not have time against Clemson. And I think we saw that all year long, that Alabama, there was a whole lot of time. And I've talked about it during the course of the year and wrote about it in the breakdowns at LandryFootball.com that Alabama, all year long, their offensive line was outstanding. The protection was outstanding. And they made plays from the from the different little side adjustment routes against the Tennessees and all that. All of that didn't work against Clemson because Clemson's front, it was so um, ferocious. Which and is got impressive into the without Dexter Lawrence. Yeah, it was. And, but, you know, they are loaded with talent even without Dexter. They were very, very, um, very, very exact and very, very penetrating. And I thought the secondary, which, quite frankly, I've seen people being able to attack a little bit. Uh, was not attackable because there wasn't enough time. And I thought it was a hyper-aggressive defensive approach in which Brent Venables says, we're going to attack him, give him a different look, and we're not going to give him time to make the adjustment, and we're going to jump the route. And in short, that's what they did. They did it consistently. And that on that side of the ball was the difference in the game and why Alabama, even though they made some plays, Scott, offensively, they completed some passes, they ran the football well, it wasn't sustainable because the aggressiveness was constant, consistent, was effective, and while Alabama had their points in times of success, they could not finish, and they could not finish drives. And then Alabama had a lot of negative plays. I talked a little bit about Alabama offensively in the Oklahoma game, not playing a very clean game, mm-hmm. you know, you know, just missing on opportunities at the end of the first half. Well, you know, fans don't pay attention to that, Scott, when you win by 11 or 18. It, it just doesn't matter. Your winning is all that matters. Well, that carried over to this game because I saw the same thing. Red zone inefficiency. Uh, so, I mean, you start the game, you got to pick six. You, you miss an extra point. Okay, so yeah. you've, you now you've given up eight points right there. And then you go in in the red zone and you just do a poor job, but you're very unsound. You got to kick three and three seven. So now you're 12 points in arrears that you've messed up. And then, you know, that just doesn't work. It, it 
when you build a 28-point lead against Oklahoma, against a weak defense, you kind of overcome it. You you basically give up 12 points um, to a team like Clemson. That was a lot more difficult, and it put them behind the eight ball. And while I thought they came back for stretches, boy, they really struggled. Uh, they clearly, I thought, defensively on the other side, two things jumped out at me for Alabama. Could not generate any pass rush. And they, they were on the field way too much, and their their legs got dead, and they really couldn't generate any pass rush. So Trevor Lawrence had all the time in the world. So when you say, hey, the key was third down efficiency, well, yes, it was. Because Tua didn't have time, Trevor did. And Trevor made some stick throws. Ross was phenomenal. And the other thing, in addition to lack of a pass rush, Alabama secondary was vulnerable all year long. No one took advantage because no one was good enough to take advantage. I know personally that Nick was – he camouflaged that secondary all year long. They're just – they lost a lot of people. They've got a lot of young guys. They just don't have enough of them to match up. Not enough people can do enough against them to make them pay. And with with Alabama scoring a bunch of points, it wasn't enough. So even when an Arkansas or somebody scored points, Alabama still at you know 25 points ahead. In this you know, game, it was completely different. So it really, you know, I'm going on and on here, but this this is kind of how it played out and the mistakes in addition to not basically getting exposed with the talent level of Clemson. This is a different type of game, which is why when we talk about Alabama, it's not about, hey, what are they, or Clemson, not about what they're going to do in the league all year and winning games. It's about what can they do to get better, and it's kind of like getting Trevor Lawrence in the game after week four. That worked out pretty well because, in my opinion, you know, Kelly Bryant's not doing the same thing to Alabama that Trevor did. Well, that's what I wanted to bring up, and a couple of things here. One, Alabama, you mentioned the inefficiency in the red zone, right? The one for four when they were in the red zone is just unacceptable. They put up 443 yards of offense, Chris. They moved the ball right. on Clemson. They just failed when it came down to it. The fake field goal, which was Correct. just uh, just mind-boggling for Nick Saban to come up with that sort of play in that moment when everybody probably was assuming that there was going to be a fake and you don't even throw the ball. And by the way, by the way, if mm-hmm. you're going to go for it, keep your offense on the field. Exactly. Go for it. Exactly. Go for why, it. Why, you're not fooling anybody. Or, you're not fooling anybody. But if you think, just yes, get, put the best players and put the ball in their hands. And then the fourth and goal, and you have Tua on a quarterback sweep. Just it did the, the calling, the, the play calling didn't make sense. The yes. red zone efficiency was pathetic. Something that you're not used to seeing from Alabama. It's not like they weren't efficient. They, like I said, 443 yards of offense. They moved the ball on Clemson. They just two two the two interceptions hurt them. And the inability to convert when they got into the red zone hurt them, and that's why they lost 44-16 to instead of it being a much closer game. But you mentioned Kelly Bryant, and you mentioned the move to Dabo Sw- that Dabo Swinney did to Trevor Lawrence. And I tweeted this out after the game, too, that switching quarterbacks after week four is going to go down as the defining moment of this college football season. And I know that everyone just says, oh, well, you know, he was the better quarterback, and they were going to let Kelly Bryant transfer anyway. But no. He understood what needed to be done in order to win the national championship game. Because if you go back throughout the past several years playing against Alabama in the three prior matchups in the playoffs, and yes, Deshaun Watson was incredible with the come-from-behind effort and 
just a fantastic national championship win. But whether it's him or whether it was especially Kelly Bryant, they did not attack down the field. Trevor Lawrence on Monday night threw multiple passes beyond 25 and 30 yards down the field. You mentioned the the inefficiencies in the Alabama secondary. Trevor Lawrence gave Dabo Swinney the ability to exploit that where Kelly Bryant has not. And it's not a knock on Kelly Bryant. They're just two different styles of quarterback. And in week four, after that game, when Dabo had to make the decision and partially, yes, make the decision at the time to, to, to do the right thing by Kelly Bryant, I think he was planning for this moment. He knew this is the type of quarterback I need to win the national championship this year. And that moment cannot go understated. Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt about it that for their team to be at its maximal level and, you know, Dabo is really good at managing situations and handling with kid gloves, players, ex-players and saying the right things. But the reality is there were limitations with Kelly Bryant that um, um, that they knew they had something special in Trevor Lawrence. I, I mentioned this to you before, but I was there in the spring last year mm-hmm. and Trevor was there. And they told me that this kid, not the, you know, six, five, you know, you know, gun for an arm. That was pretty easy. But they said the, his presence, his yeah. poise, how he's just this unusual like grown man you know type even though he's his driver's license says he's a kid (laughs) that that just made him i mean the the team just gravitated to he just oozes leadership and so they knew they had shattered every one of deshaun watson's uh georgia state high school records yeah no listen they knew they had something special now, people, and I even said there was a chance this guy would start at the beginning of the year. I think because of the way Dabo does things, he's never really done that. He always has the veteran come in and gives him that chance. And then and then he made the move. Um, and, and the rest, as they say, is history. Because, you know, people will say, oh, well, he did it against this opponent and that opponent. Th- those are... Those are results-oriented issues and not process-studied issues that really will tell you that this guy can do it. And I did not think at all that he would, you know, uh, wilt under the pressure. He's just not that type of guy. And I, again, would say that the ability of Clemson to protect and the inability of Alabama to get any pass rush allowed a guy like Trevor to make plays, and he made some unbelievable throws – but one of the things that I thought Alabama would be able to do better is get interior pressure in his face. They never did it all day, and Clemson made him pay because outside of a couple of big run plays, they couldn't run the football on Alabama. So they're doing this all in a drop-back fashion. And quite frankly, with a little tempo, and, with, and this is where complimentary football comes in, Scott. So Alabama's offense – you know, making mistakes, right? Not capitalizing, right? Putting their defense back on the field, right? What does that do, Scott? Makes that defense a little what? A little tired? Mm-hmm. Now they're and they add up and they add up. We saw Alabama's defense get gassed against Oklahoma again with a big lead. It didn't manifest itself in a loss. Now again, 
defense. All of a sudden, you got that defense that can't get past rush. They can't cover well enough. They could cover well enough against most people. Clemson's receivers are special. They're big, they're fast, and they torched them. And without enough pressure, you know, they, 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 they just ate Alabama up. So it really was a case of Alabama could not get off the field. Well, what you know, you hear that term, well, why couldn't they get off the field, Chris? Well, here's why they couldn't get off the field. Third downs, Clemson was converting everything. Third and eight, third and 12, third and six. Any pass rush, and Lawrence was playing pitch and catch with guys that were getting open repeatedly, and he's making stick throws. It was a pretty easy game and a pretty easy game plan from that standpoint because they couldn't do a very good job of getting enough pressure. And if you can't get enough pressure, you know, all the disguising doesn't work. Clemson was able to disguise well, but they were able to generate pressure. And at the end of the day, that's what led to all of that, led to all of that success because I think both quarterbacks were capable of making plays one head time. I think Trevor Lawrence is the better quarterback. I think he's going to be the better college quarterback. I think he's going to have the better pro career, but I think Tua is very capable. We've seen him do it, um, but you have to give him time. So I think that is what I learned from it is going forward. I think Alabama has to play better complementary football, be a little bit better line of scrimmage team than they were this year, control the football more and protect their defense um, and get pressure on teams so that Tua you know, can play more balanced because Alabama's run game fuels their passing game, whereas Clemson can do a little bit more with tempo and be a little bit more pass first. Which surprised me last uh, watching that game, Chris, why Alabama didn't focus in on the run more. And I know that the game flow dictates that a lot because if you found yourself trailing early, you, you kind of have to pass to get involved in the game. But I thought that they were running the ball well. They have the three-headed monster at the running back position. And I felt that by running the ball, they could have controlled the clock and given their defense time to rest because of Clemson's tempo. I was just surprised to see them not run the ball more than they did. Uh, I thought that they should have tried to control the clock a little bit more. They should have rotated those backs and, and done a little more in, in the running game. I, I was just surprised by that, but I understood it because of you know the fact that they found themselves trailing by so much going into the second half. Well, that was the game plan. Uh, it was a game plan to start, and it was a game plan coming out of the second half that they were going to run the football. As, as well as they ran it um, between the 20s, they faltered in the red zone. Yeah. And Clemson really bowled up and stopped them a problem to where they started to go backwards. So, you know, running the football is really important because it sets up the passing game, but it all, you know, you've got to finish those drives with, with touchdowns and Alabama didn't do it. So as the game is going on, we, we talked about the mistakes and all the points that Alabama gave up, up through their mistakes. Then, then they couldn't get it done. And then Clemson stepping up big in the fourth downs and but some of those second and third down plays were none game that were having success, as I mentioned, but the lack of success in those moments set up a longer third down, you know, third and four, third and five, as opposed to third and one. Um, and it and it didn't convert. All those th- to negative plays in critical moments. And if I had to sum it up, that 
Clemson made all the big plays in the game, and Alabama made most of the negative, if not all the negative plays in the game. And that was the difference. So when you can't finish drives further behind, that gets into what you just mentioned. Mm -hmm. You get further and further behind. You try to run the football, set up the pass. Kind of hard to do now when you're 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 three possessions down and you're trying to. Even though you got a lot of time, you got to score quickly. You got to score every possession. It becomes more difficult. Uh, if you're in a one possession game, you can run your entire offense. How good of a passing game you are. The run game, the commitment to the run greatly enhances your ability to throw the football. It's not about how many yards. It's not. It's the impact of running on the defense. And then if, if they could have forced Clemson to consistently have to defend the run and make it, it would have slowed down their pass rush a little bit, then Tua would have been more successful. They would have got people say, why didn't they get the ball to, to, to Judy more and Irv Smith more and this guy? Because they didn't have time. Yeah. They couldn't set it up with the run. That's why they didn't have time. And then you get behind, it's further and further behind. That's where Alabama's not been really, you know, when has Alabama been down, you know, 14 points? No, 13 they, no. points. They weren't used to it. 18 points. They, they don't live in that world. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, and again, you know, with all due respect to other programs that are good, like in Oklahoma, in doing that, Oklahoma has to outscore everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, and then so again, Oklahoma's defense is bad. Alabama's defense is talented. So I want to hammer this point at home. Alabama will have all bunch of players in that defense that are going to be drafted high in April's draft. But as talented a defense as you have, if you're on the field for that many snaps, and if you're on the field in shorter interviews from when your offense gets done and you can't you can't sustain an offense and you're back on the field again, your defense is vulnerable. I mean, it becomes worn out. It becomes no longer a talented defense. It's a worn-out defense. It's the toughest thing physically to do in football. That is to line up on defense, come off the ball, rush the passer for 12 seconds, then go back and do it again and again and again. And if you do that over a number of snaps – I'm telling you, you can't do it for 72 snaps a game, 75 snaps a game. If you're doing it for 55, it's a different world that you're living in, and that's the world that Alabama found themselves in due to ineffectiveness on offense to finish, close out drives, getting behind, and in some cases, again, against Oklahoma, they got into a little bit of that shootout game with them, Scott. It's just that they did it with a big cushion of a lead. They put, they built themselves a deficit against Clemson, and that's a no-no and something they were climbing uphill, and then they were always seemingly one drive away from being put out of their misery, and Clemson Clemson delivered the knockout punch without question uh, after the fake you know, field goal and all, another negative play. Boom. Clemson, again, made all the big plays when they needed to. But why? It wasn't just, well, Alabama wasn't ready to play. And this, that. that's a very superfluous, you know, over the top kind of a, yeah, but why weren't they? You know, they, were they weren't ready or would, did they really not do a good job of preparing for some of the things that Clemson did? Football is a game of adjustments. It's a it's adjustment between plays, between series, at halftime, between games. I don't think they were prepared for all the defensive looks 
that Clemson threw at them. They didn't adjust very well in game, but when they did try to run the football and work with certain adjustments that I thought were effective, Scott, they made mistakes. So the Mm -hmm. mental errors will kill you. And so I don't know what type of focus or what led to that. I mean, there's a lot of theories. And Mike Loxley, like we saw with Kirby Smart, it wasn't the best defensive game plan when he was a defensive coordinator at Alabama. When you know, yeah, when he when he accepted the Georgia job, that was an issue. We see this happen a lot, but this is going to happen a lot for Alabama. They've got to, you know, I don't know if it was a preparation. You know, the whole Lane Kiffin kicked him out and put Sark in. For, I mean, there's been a lot of those situations that contributed to the maybe to the Clemson loss than in the, the last time they played. I, you know, there, there are different theories you can go about what led to why they weren't as prepared because no one is better prepared than Alabama and Nick Saban's teams, but they were out-prepared, out-coached, and out-played and out-executed by Clemson uh, in all aspects Monday night. So let's look forward now and talk about where these teams go next year. For Alabama, uh, Tua will be once again under center at the quarterback position. Running back, uh, they'll just keep cycling these guys. You know, it's funny. I was going over the list last night because I was really talking to a friend of mine about Josh Jacobs and his NFL ability. And I don't know if he's going to declare for the draft, but if I were his agent, I would tell him to because the kid's got NFL talent. Same thing, Damian Harris will be running on Sundays as well. Uh, Najee Harris will be back next year, right? But Alabama always seems to cycle in these running backs, whether um, it's Ingram to Henry, Drake, Yeldon, Lacey, Richardson. It's like every single year there's an elite running back for the Alabama Crimson Tide. They bring in true freshman next year, Trey Sanders, who was the number one running back recruit in the country. Mm -hmm. I don't know if he's going to play as a freshman, but he sure as heck has the talent to do so. I mentioned Najee Harris, some other guys that they have on their roster. How does Alabama now look going into the 2019 football season? Well, it's just incredible uh, because they're very, very talented. Um, You know, when you look at a guy like Najee Harris as a sophomore, Brian Robinson is really good, very, very talented. Um, And and you mentioned Sanders is outstanding. They've got a lot of talent that is never going to be an issue. And I don't know that – how much you know you know Sanders is going to have to wait his turn but we'll see if he outplays those guys he'll be playing so um Keelan Robinson is another guy that is an outstanding running back that's coming in next year so they're they're loaded with a lot of guys that can come in and help them and so they won't they'll miss these guys like they miss all the guys and then they'll just bring in some new guys and these guys will will step up and make big time plays i think this team coming back next year is very very good um they're they're also very good in other aspects on the offensive line they're pretty good they'll miss pierce bocker they miss uh jonathan williams but i think this will be a very good team led by the quarterback led by the passing game but i do think there's going to be a heavy focus on being a little bit more physical and being a little bit more run focused um at least I would expect Nick to do that going back to his tradition because he knows that complements his defense like like it needs to be. And defensively, listen, they lose some key guys, no question. They'll lose bugs. But remember the name LeBron Ray. He's a sophomore, the next great one. Uh, Christian Miller is going to be gone, but uh, 
Uh, Anoma is a great player. Mac Wilson will be gone, uh, but uh, they've Joshua McMillan uh, is is a is a really good player, uh, and the Benton kid is outstanding. So listen, uh, they're they're really really talented. Got some loaded players. I tweeted it out last night. They've got if you're looking at what I call blue grade or red grade players that are four or five star guys. Alabama's got 64 in their roster, and uh, a lot of them are, are, you know, some of them are going to be going to the draft, but we're talking about just, you know, red and blue all across the depth chart, four and five deep for this team. So they won't be lacking for talent. What they're going to have to do is replenish their secondary, um, get more experience there, and kind of retool the offensive line, become a little bit more run-centric, and I think they'll be fine. I, I think if you look at the history when they lose, they don't win it all. They come back the next year with a yep. purpose. I'd make them the favorite next year, quite frankly, because of the fact that they lost Monday night it for no other reason, although Clemson's going to have a lot to say about it, and yep. Georgia too. And you mentioned Clemson now going into the next season. Obviously, the quarterback is already in place in Trevor Lawrence. The running back is in place. Travis Etienne is going to be a junior next year, so he'll be back. Uh, talent up and down this roster. I talk about the speed on defense every time I talk about them because it's one of the things that I notice every time I watch this team play. How does Clemson now look going into 2019? Again, their favorite to win the national championship. They'll probably run through the ACC, although I do think the ACC will take a step up next year from where it was this past year, but I don't see anybody getting past the Clemson Tigers. How solid do they look going into next year? Yeah, I mean, no one's going to beat them in that league uh, unless they just, you know, fall asleep in a game, and we've seen them do that before, but... Um, I don't think anybody's going to touch them. Um, and so they've got a chance to kind of build their team. Look, they'll, they'll miss Mitch Hyde at left tackle, but Jackson Corman is outstanding young left tackle. They'll bring a number of these guys back on the offensive line. They're pretty good. The receiving core is ridiculous. The quarterback's outstanding. Um, you mentioned ATN, but Len J. Dixon's really good. Um, this is a very, very talented group. Now, defensively, they're, they're going to lose some guys. Farrell's going to come out. Um, Wilkins is 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 gone. Is gone. Um, um, Austin Bryant is gone. Um, you know Lawrence is gone. So they'll you can't lose all those guys and be just as good. But they've got some good ones. I mean, remember the names Justin Fisher and Chris Register. And um, now I can tell you the other guy that's going to be gone that's very underrated is Huggins, who replaced Lawrence. He's a really good player. He's gone. But Niles Pickney's a really good player. And Jordan Williams is another good defensive tackle, as is Xavier Kelly. So, you know, uh, Oster Bryant's gone, but Xavier Thomas is the next great defensive end. Um, Logan Rudolph is is really good. So they've got a lot of guys because they've recruited so well. They're much like Alabama. Yeah, they'll miss those guys, but they'll – you know, replace those guys and be very, very effective. And by year's end, we're going to be talking about those guys. The other thing is that the the one difference between Clemson and Alabama is there's constant staff volatility in Alabama. Um, you know, they're losing key guys on Alabama staff. Uh, there may he may want to make some changes on his coaching staff. Nick is runs a ship that. Coaches love to go and learn under him, but they can't wait to get away because he's tough to work for. Mm-hmm. And Nick is constantly wanting new ideas and fresh thoughts. And and he made some changes on his coaching staff, particularly defensively, that were more recruiting-centric, Scott. And I think it affected him 
on game day preparation, week prepar- the, the, the game week preparation and game day adjustments, and I think it affected him. So how he wants to adjust that could change it. Clemson, all those guys are coming back. I mean, you know, the, the, it's a very – fun, friendly family environment there, and they rarely lose assistance, so the continuity factor helps them. So different strokes for different folks. Obviously, um, you know, both have been successful, but I think both of these teams are going to be very talented, and it leads with the quarterbacks coming back that gives them a great chance. Then they'll build their teams around them with good young talent that are going to, I think, allow both of these teams, particularly Clemson because with an easier path. I mean, if I were to give a lock to make the playoffs next year, it would be Clemson. Clemson. Yeah. I mean, no one's going to beat them. No one's going to beat them, exactly. Now, you know, I could make a case where Georgia and Alabama, they knock one another out, and there is not that type of team in the ACC right now that is close to Clemson, whereas Alabama is going to get tougher. A&M's only going to get better. Georgia's only going to get better. Florida's only going to get better. Now, Florida and Alabama doesn't play. Um, but they got to play NM every year now. And, and so in getting through the SEC East, um, likely being Georgia is going to be a tougher road for Alabama. And who knows? They don't play as well. Maybe lose a game next year, let's say. Um, and they, you know, they, they might, I, I could create a scenario where Alabama doesn't even make the playoffs uh, much more than I, I ever could Clemson. Yep, that's a fair point. Uh, you mentioned some coaching moves that could happen with Alabama. Well, let's talk about the coaching news that has happened across the nation and the biggest news of them all, Chris. Cliff Kingsbury, just what, three weeks maybe after being mm-hmm. hired as the offensive coordinator at USC, has accepted the head coaching job with the Arizona Cardinals in the NFL. Now, this is a story that we thought was going to happen when Cliff Kingsbury was shown the door at Texas Tech. There was a lot of interest at the NFL level, and I, in fact, was surprised that he took the job at USC, but I understood his logic. See, a lot of people are giving him you know, some heat for this. I loved his logic because he didn't take a head coaching job somewhere which in my opinion would have been worse to leave. He took a coordinator position somewhere, knowing that it's a little easier to leave a coordinator position that you just accepted if you get that head coaching job in the NFL. But if you don't get the job that you are comfortable with in the NFL, then at least you have that backup plan, which is to be a coordinator. And you can only do, maybe you do that for just one year before you bounce and become a head coach somewhere else. So I think it was actually smart of him to take a coordinator job as opposed to a head coaching position somewhere else around the country, because I don't think you leave doing that. But what does this move say, not only about Cliff, but about Clay Helton, about Lynn Swan, about the USC program, and about the landscape of coaching moves and the coaching carousel that we see go back and forth all the time in the world of college football. Well, let me address a couple of things here and make sure I don't forget any of your points because you bring up a good point. Um, Let me say this. Um, There wasn't a head coaching opportunity out there in college that was going to hire Cliff. I mean, he wasn't in the running for any of those. So – I, I, I don't know. Like, for example, I, I don't know that if he was offered the Louisville job or the North Carolina job that he would have turned that down um, necessarily. I don't know that. I'm not saying he would. I'm not saying what I'm saying it never got to that because he was never a candidate. Now, yeah. 
you know, Tulsa and East Carolina, I don't know of the level of interest that he would have had if they were interested in him. So I don't know that. But I do think it brings a valid point. Now, we saw this with, and this is a little unusual, but it's happened before. We saw Manny Diaz take the Temple job only to back only out to and go right out. back yep. to Miami. Mm-hmm. So if Cliff wanted to take a head job and move, I don't know that if he had a really good job that he would have said, nah, I'm not going to do that because I'm thinking I might get an in. Listen, I think that what we're seeing now, and I'm a little surprised. I'm not surprised. I guess I'm not as excited about this move for the Cardinals giving him a head coaching job. I've talked to people in the league about Cliff. I think Cliff has some really good creative ideas offensively. Uh, he did meet when he got fired by Texas Tech. He did meet with Sean McVay to, you know, to at least see, hey, we'd love to have you here as a consultant, do things, maybe have a role for you here, so on and so forth. We lose a guy, Zach Taylor leaves. I think I mentioned it to you. You know, boom, you might have a shot here. Boom. I think it's a good fit there. I think in the right situation with the right head coach being a good offensive coordinator or or that he would be a fit as an offensive coordinator and be a good offensive coordinator. Boy, it is an unbelievable leap of faith to say that Cliff Kingsbury is the answer for the Arizona Cardinals. Mm -hmm. Because here's what's happening in the league right now. And Cliff is the perfect example of that. We're looking for the next Sean McVay. Boy, you can – yeah. Have we heard that before, huh? <laughs> I mean, did you really? I mean, Sean, I don't think Cliff is the next Sean. I think, yeah, all right, he can fix Josh Rosen. He's going to. Cliff was not very organized as a head coach. He did not do nearly as good a job at Texas Tech as Tommy Tuberville or, you know, uh, Mike Leach. I mean, it, it's, listen, Texas Tech is not a difficult job to keep. Because if you go to bowl games, you do a decent job, you can keep that job, particularly if that's your alma mater. He didn't do a very good job there as a head coach. Now he's going to have to have learn a whole new NFL. He's going to need a whole lot of help. He is going to have to have a home run coaching staff that's going to have to carry him so he can basically be the head coach in title, but basically he's going to be the offensive coordinator. Yeah, he's going to he's gonna have to hire like Greg Williams to be his defensive coordinator or something. You know, somebody who has head right. coaching experience, somebody who can also be a very, um, like, not outgoing, but somebody who kind of takes a, a Rob Ryan type that takes attention away from well, him somewhat. I would say that he needs more of a Vic Fangio type of guy. To well, what Vic Matt Fangio Nagy's might be a head coach. In, in a, no, 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 no. I'm not talking about Vic. I'm not talking about Vic Fangio. Yeah. I'm talking about a Vic Fangio type of guy. Okay. Uh-huh. That type of guy that that to me would be the assistant head coach. That and I think there. See, my concern would be with a guy like a Greg Williams is that Greg is so overbearing that 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 he would kind of envelop and mm-hmm. kind of overtake, you know, Cliff, and, and it would be a uh, almost combustible in some ways. But I, your point's well taken. He needs somebody that's not only going to run his defense, but you better have somebody that's going to understand that if you're going to run some gimmicky stuff on offense, that this is going to affect how well you do defensively. So what's going to be the plan there? Ooh, because, I got a name. I got a know, name. And, and, and this is an inch. I got a name that I'm just out of nowhere. I'm throwing this out here. Greg Schiano. Oh, my God. Now, now, personality wise, you talking about oil and water. 
Um, <laughs> Greg is. You, you, you talk about you know. I mean, well, now Jones we probably, need to he's hire. Probably, he's probably going to be on the Patriot staff anyway because Belichick loves him. Well, we, we need we need to hire extra security there because you're talking about uh, you're talking about you talk, and I'm talking about for the coaching staff yeah. in the coaches' meeting rooms there. Uh, I you know, but but you're you're on the right track of it needs to be somebody not only that can run the defense, but how do we handle head coaching things from an NFL level? He's going to need a lot of help from the administration. So listen, I wish it well. Listen, I, I think there's some of those same things that are going on in Green Bay with Matt LaForhire, who who coached at Notre Dame and uh, coaches Sean Kaiser, and, and you know he's first-time head coach. So some of that's going to be in play. At least you can make the case that Cliff was a head coach somewhere. Yeah. In college, is, it's, it's experience level. So uh, it's going to be real interesting. Now, from the what USC is, standpoint, yes, what does I want this to get mean for USC? Um, what does it, this it's say it's about awful for Clay Helton. It's all. First of all, I don't know how great a fit, but but they needed to. Ha- now they don't have a coordinator. They needed to fix that offense. Um, a guy that was going to come in and work with the young quarterback no longer there. It's kind of late in the process, so you lose a guy, and it is no doubt a dumb move by Lynn Swan. And this is we've had now former football players at at USC. Yeah, that don't know how to administrate. Uh, their whole operations, and that is a deeper issue of why they got problems. Um, it was an embarrassment because, in reality, he could have resigned. He could have. Here's the thing, you know, he could have found a way to kind of wink, wink, talk to people, do it in the right way, and then know that hey, I can resign, and because that's what he did. It's one hundred fifty thousand dollars, so that's a drop in the bucket if somebody really wanted to hire him. So in essence, what you did is you kind of made yourself as a university and the program look a little foolish that you're not going to let him interview for head jobs. And this goes to your point, kind of difficult to say, I'm going to leave and go be a coordinator in the NFL once you take a coordinator job in college. But a head coaching job in the NFL is a different thing. You've got to let them do that. It, it really hurts the reputation of USC in the coaching profession for how they bungled this administratively. So it's a bad move. For USC administratively, it makes Lynn Swan look bad. Uh, he had to basically go back and renege and say it's okay because it just—it's really embarrassing there, and it's really bad for USC and Clay Helton. And uh, uh, barring something that I just don't see happening, I think we're probably talking about a coaching opening in uh, in LA last year. I thought we were going to see one this year, but it's going to be—it's uh, just gotten tougher and tougher for them to make that move. So who do you think that they start calling to maybe replace um, replace Cliff Kingsbury and go wind up and, and be that offensive coordinator? I think it's going to be difficult, Scott, and here's why. Uh, I mean, they'll find a coach, don't get me wrong, but it's a little late in the hiring process. So a lot of people have kind of found their job. Now, they can go perch somebody who's a coordinator at a program – that's not as high profile as USC, right? But, you know, you're dealing with a situation where if the USC, you're going to have to probably offer them a three-year deal. Because why are you going to want to go to USC if it could be a one-year and out deal if you've got any sort of stability where you are? So that takes the pool of guys that you want to choose from and, and kind of limit them. So, listen, there, there's some good people out there. But I don't know that it's going to be as easy to find that type of guy that can fit what you want. Um, 
you know, you know, to, to find somebody that will come in um, at this late stage and be the ideal fit for. So it's it the timing's tough all around. It's bad for USC because the timing in particular makes it much more complex since the coaching hiring cycle um, is getting nearing towards its end at the college level. But he'll find somebody, mm-hmm. um, and quite frankly, maybe as competent as Cliff Kingsbury. I just don't know that it's going to be what they need at USC to to save Clay Elton's job. I know you're on top of all the other coaching news at LandryFootball.com, your uh, daily notebooks, of course, and, and, and the War Room newsletters that you're sending out. So what other coaching news do we read about on LandryFootball.com this week? I would assume uh, the new head coach at West Virginia, correct? At Neil Brown, really good hire by them, outstanding coach. We've talked about him for some time at Troy, really good organizer. You know, listen, West Virginia's a good job. Uh, you've got to do a little bit more uh, with less there. It is a unique job in that there's not a real recruiting base at West Virginia. Um, you know, the kids that are in the Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh area that they can recruit that's right across the, you know, right across the state line. You know, they don't want to go play in the Big 12. I mean, they're they're they just doesn't does not a real good fit. They've got to go to different places. Um, they've got to make inroads in Texas and in Florida. So it, it's a ch- and then the the. The, the budget is good, but not great. And you're kind of the, the sore thumb in the Big 12 because you're just way out east and everybody. So, listen, that, that's why they lost Dana Hargelson to a group of five school, albeit a very, very rich you know group of five school with Tillman Fertitta pulling the purse strings there at Houston. Um, it's, it's an opportunity for Neil. It's a good job. He can certainly, if he does a good job there, could certainly move on down the road. He's a fast-track guy really, really bright, really organized. And I think he'll do uh, do a really good job for them. So, yeah, we've got that broken down. The latest in the coaching searches, Tennessee, his, uh, looks like they found their offensive coordinator, uh, an old friend there, Jim Chaney, who used to be the offensive coordinator under Lane Kiffin. Um, is looked like he's headed back to Tennessee. He was the offensive coordinator at Georgia. Really good balance offensively, defensively. Um, Jeremy Pruitt, it's been a seven-week coaching search for offensive coordinator, and he's focused on maybe finding that right guy and focus on recruiting. But this would be a good get for Tennessee. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think something that Georgia is not 100% worried about I think they like Jim, but I think they felt like uh, Kirby felt like he wasn't going to fight to keep him because if it was just money, he could have kept Jim. Uh, my understanding is that, uh, you know, they thought that maybe this might be good for Jim and Georgia wants to go in a different direction. So we'll see how this plays out is obviously things for Georgia. They had a good year but they didn't do the best job offensively of adjusting to certain things and not quite sure why that is, but the head coach and the offensive coordinator, I don't think we're in the, the greatest of, uh, uh, of form. And before we wrap this up, Chris, I just have to say congratulations to the North Dakota state bison on winning their yes. seventh national championship in the last eight seasons. And Chris Kleiman, who now heads to Kansas state to take over for Bill Snyder, four national championships in five years as their head coach. And 
lost in the national championship the other year. So four out of five, just a tremendous job. That is at the FCS level, no one's better than North Dakota State. They are a true dynasty amongst teams and amongst programs in college football. So congratulations to North Dakota State. Yeah, and the thing I like about them, you know, too, is they they understand that's a good niche for them. And, you know, quite frankly, you go back in the history of Boise State. I'm old enough to remember when Boise State was a junior college. Mm. And then they went to, you know, NEI. Then they went to 3-2 and then Division One a kind of where North Dakota State is now. And they had good facilities, did a good job, and they made the move up. And we saw what Boise State and the success that they've had. But they're kind of in that no man's land because they can't play for championships pretty much. And in North Dakota State, if you go by there, the facilities are outstanding, and they take pride into it that, that hey, we go to the playoffs every year, we play for championships. I think there is something to that, and I think it's something that uh, I give credit to the powers that be there that understand that this is how we do it, and you do it with the 45 scholarships. and you do. It, it, it is something we need to really think in terms of the group of five. A lot of those group of five teams probably should be playing you know, for their own group of five championship. But it is uh, it. Chris now has to go and he has to get into a different world. He's going to have to recruit at a different level, get different type of players. He's going to have to work that JUCO ranks and in the Jayhawk League, uh, recruit guys to that, develop them, uh, and obviously get that program to compete um, at a level in the Big 12. It's going to be interesting to see what he tries to do. If he tries to be the more balanced approach, the TCU approach, and try to challenge those Big 12 teams in the high-flying offenses with, hey, a little bit different style. We're going to run it, play keep away, be a little bit more physical than you are in the defense, or is he, is he going to try to open it up and be like them? It's kind of interesting in where the Big 12 is, uh, and, and you get some that, some that do that, some that don't. Um, we'll see with now both Kansas jobs – in the Big 12, got new head coaches. Mm-hmm. I'm Scott Seidenberg. He's Chris Landry of LandryFootball.com. And you can join all 32 NFL teams and 78 major college football programs by becoming a member of LandryFootball.com. Get in on all the latest inside information from the guy that college and NFL programs turn to as a consultant on coaching and scouting matters. Look, it's less than a magazine subscription. You can get the film room breakdowns, the recruiting information, college football draft, NFL coaching search stuff. Just go to LandryFootball.com. Dot com. Check out. They got great membership package offers. You get three, six, nine months yearly. You get all the access to the insights of veteran coach, scout, and administrator Chris Landry today. Each Tuesday and Thursday, new episodes of the Landry Football Podcast. Each Wednesday, new episodes of this, Rush the Field. You can't go wrong. And Chris, always follow on Twitter, right? At Landry Football for the latest breaking news. Absolutely. And of course, we've been looking for ways to reward our listeners. And we think we've done it with the War Room newsletter. We're working through some technical issues, but we'll be back this week. It's the War Room newsletter. It's a once a week in your email box. It'll come in usually on Friday. It'll be on Fridays. You'll get inside information from around the football well and make you eligible for future prizes and contests. It's free. All you got to do is go to LandryFootball.com. Look for the War Room logo halfway down the right side of the front page hit subscribe um you can select chris at the top of the front page as well so sign up today get some inside information that we're going to provide keep you up to date also on what's going on on landryfootball.com so uh, we've got a lot of things folks scott i know you can uh, you join me in saying that yeah the the football playing season is over but college football it, it like the NFL, it has its own unique offseason, which is not really an offseason. 
it has become bigger and bigger now with transfers, with recruiting. We've still got some coaching changes. We'll assess things that are take place with changes, spring practice, uh, a lot of things that we're going to examine, the state of programs, the recruiting, uh, draft prospects, a lot of things that are going on uh, around the college game. We will get you prepared week in and week out here with the latest information in college football, uh, as well as kind of breaking down the game for you. So it'll be August before we all know it. Mm-hmm. We'll be kicking the football up again late August, September. I can't. I, it seems like it was. We started this. It felt like a you know three four weeks ago that it was August, and we're talking about the first wave of games, and now we put the season to bed. But a lot goes on that makes the season what it is and we're going to be here to to document it for you week in and week out yes and be sure to hit subscribe likes rate and review because we're going to have some special features coming up uh, throughout the next couple of weeks including state of the program Chris where we're going to take some programs around the college football landscape and talk about uh, where they came from where they are and where they are going as we progress into 2019 I'm Scott Seidenberg he's Chris Landry from LandryFootball.com Rush the Field can be found on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and RadioInfluence.com. Talk to you next week, Chris. Hey, look forward to it, Scott. This is a sitting ringside with David Penzer. Quick Fix on Radio Influence. I come to you with a heavy heart. Uh, one of uh, the greatest, funnest people that I've ever known in my life, who I got to call a friend, uh, has passed recently. As y'all know, Mean Gene Oakland passed. Yeah, even the little things. Um, I at one point I we were down in South Florida doing Monday Night Show, and I brought my family backstage. Uh, didn't take them in the dressing room, but I took them around, and my father and my mother and my brother and my wife and two young kids at the time, and uh. I introduced my dad to Gene. Gene legitimately wanted, you know, most people don't want to talk to your dad. Uh, you know, I didn't want him to talk to my dad. I just wanted him to say hello. Uh, but he said, so, you know, what do you do? And my dad was is a psychologist. Uh, he's retired now. And Gene was really fascinated with that. And they sat and talked for about 20 minutes uh, about, you know, my dad's life and Gene's life and me and and every time from that day every time after WCW I would see Gene he would always ask hey how's your dad tell him I said hello seriously always ask there was never one time that he didn't ask and you know he met my father one time he thought he was an interesting guy uh and my dad always stuck with my dad uh, the first thing I did when I heard is I texted my dad and uh and so that was just the kind of guy he was. He he was a giver, not a taker, and he was uh, he was hilarious and talented. And he called me the Lonsman. And for the longest time, I had no idea what that meant. But it's a a name for a Jewish gentleman, and that is my background. So he would pitch to me. He'd call me the Lonsman. So I just want to say, Mean Gene, from the Lonsman, rest in peace. It was an honor to know you and you will be very very missed sitting ringside with david penzer can be found on apple podcast stitcher TuneIn radio google play and radioinfluence.com